Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusade. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode six of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is Gunpowder and Cannons. In the last episode, we heard about how Constantine XI Palaeologus, the last Byzantine emperor, was unable to muster help from Western Europe to save Constantinople. The reason for this really lies with a crisis that weakened Western Europe in the late medieval evil period. This was due to several things. First, there were epidemics and climate change, which sounds all too familiar to us today, including the most famous epidemic in history called the Black Death, which lasted from 1347 to 51 and killed at least a third of the European population. The climate also changed to become much colder in the 14th century in a period that's been called the Little Ice Age, which caused harvest failures and famine, which in turn led to social unrest with a large number of peasant revolts. It was also a time of deep internal political conflict, like the Hundred Years' War between England and France, which exhausted both countries. And finally, the papacy was fairly weak because it had lost a lot of its authority in the 14th century when the French king had pretty much taken it over and started basing popes in Avignon. Rome only re-established its authority as the sole residence of the pope in 1470. But the papacy didn't have nearly the same power as it did during the period of the Crusades, when it was really the catalyst behind the First Crusade in the 11th century, and many of the other Crusades as well. But in the East, it was a totally different picture. The Ottoman Turks were rapidly rising to become a global superpower and Islamic champion, the like of which hadn't been seen since the heyday of Saladin in the 12th century. And this was obviously very bad news for the last remnant of the Byzantine Empire, holding out behind the great walls of Constantinople. And if that wasn't bad enough, there was also another big change, which was that the Ottomans were quickly becoming the masters of gunpowder and cannons. And this meant that the mighty walls of Constantinople, which had withstood all the enemy sieges except for the treacherous crusader attack of 1204, could now be blown up. And as you'll hear, this would spell disaster for the Byzantines. So, without further ado, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. Throughout the last months of 1452, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II brooded over his plans to capture Constantinople. No one, even among his ministers, knew exactly what he intended. Was he to be content now that his fortress at Rumeli Hisar gave him control of the Bosphorus and would enable him to blockade Constantinople so completely that in time it would have to surrender? He had plans drawn for a splendid new power 
palace at the city of Adrianople on an island in the river Maritza. Did that mean that he had no thought for the present of moving his government to the ancient imperial capital of Constantinople? So his vizier Halil hoped. Halil, whether or not he was receiving regular presents from the Byzantines, as was generally suspected, disliked the idea of a campaign against Constantinople. A siege would be expensive, and should it fail, the humiliation to Ottoman prestige would be disastrous. Moreover, Constantinople in its present state was politically powerless and commercially quite convenient. Halil had his supporters, amongst others, of Murad's old ministers. But there was a vigorous party opposed to him, led by soldiers such as Zaganos and Turahan Pasha, with the eunuch Shehab Adin behind them, and it was they who had the Sultan's ear. Mehmet himself spent many sleepless nights that winter as he thought about his campaign. It was said that he might be seen at midnight tramping through the streets of Adrianople, dressed as a simple soldier, and anyone who recognised him and saluted him was straight away put to death. One night, about the second watch, he suddenly ordered Halil to be brought before him. The old vizier came trembling, fearing to hear of his dismissal. To appease his master, he brought with him a dish hastily filled with gold coins. "'What is this, my teacher?' asked the sultan. Halil murmured that it was customary for ministers summoned suddenly to the presence of the sultan to bring gifts with them. Mehmet brushed the dish aside. He had no use for such gifts. "'Only one thing I want,' he cried. "'Give me Constantinople.' He then revealed that his mind was finally made up. He would attack the city as soon as possible. Halil, nervous and despondent, promised his loyal support. A few days later, towards the end of January, the Sultan assembled all his ministers and made them a long speech in which he reminded them of the achievements of their ancestors. But, he declared, the Turkish Empire would never be secure until it held Constantinople. The Byzantines might be weak, but all the same, they had shown how well they could plot with the enemies of the Turks, and in their weakness they might put the city into the hands of allies who would not be so ineffectual. Constantinople was not impregnable. He said that earlier sieges had failed because of extraneous causes. But now the moment had come. The city was torn by religious dissension. The Italians were unreliable as allies, and many of them were indeed traitors. Moreover, the Turks were at last in command of the sea. For himself, he said, if he could not rule an empire which contained Constantinople, he would sooner not rule an empire at all. His audience was stirred, even those of his council who disapproved of his intentions dared not voice their misgivings. Unanimously, his ministers followed his lead and voted for war. As soon as the war was sanctioned, the Sultan ordered the military governor of the European provinces to collect an army and attack the Byzantine cities and towns on the coasts of Thrace. The towns on the Black Sea coast were surrendered at once and so escaped pillage. But some of the towns on the Marmora coast, such as Salimbria and Perinthus, attempted to resist. They were taken by storm and sacked, and their fortifications dismantled. Already in the previous October, Turah Han Bey and his sons had been stationed on the Isthmus of Corinth to make raids into the Byzantine Peloponnese and so to distract the Byzantine emperor's brothers 
that they would never be able to send him assistance. In his speech to his council, the Sultan Mehmet had emphasised that he now had command of the sea. Previous attempts against the city had been made from the land only. The Byzantines had always been able to receive supplies by water, and until recently the Turks had been obliged to hire Christian ships for the transport of their armies between Europe and Asia. Mehmet was determined to alter that throughout the month of March 1453, Ships of all sorts began to assemble at Gallipoli. There were old ships, many of which had been repaired and recalked, but many more were new, hastily constructed during the last few months in shipyards in the towns of the Aegean coast. There were triremes in which, unlike the ancient triremes, the benches were all on one level. Each row, placed at a slightly oblique angle to the side of the ship, contained three rowers, each with a single short oar on its own tholepin, but all three projecting through one Rowlock port. The boat lay low in the water and was two-masted, the sails being used when the wind was favourable. There were biremes, slightly smaller boats, with a single mast, where the rowers sat in pairs on either side. There were fusti, or long boats, lighter than the biremes and swifter, with single rowers on each side. There were galleys, a term which was often loosely used to mean any large vessel, whether a trireme or a bireme, or a sailing boat, devoid of rowers, but which technically meant a large boat, higher out of the water with a single bank of long oars. There were also paranderia, heavy sailing barges used for transport. The size of the Sultan's armada is variously given. Figures given by the Byzantine historians are wildly exaggerated, but from the evidence of the Italian sailors who were present at Constantinople, it seems to have included six triremes and ten biremes, about 15 galleys with oars, about 75 fusti and 20 paranderia, together with a number of sloops and cutters used mainly for carrying messages. The governor of Gallipoli was placed in command. The oarsmen and sailors were some of them prisoners or slaves, but many of them volunteers, lured by handsome wages. The sultan himself took a personal interest in the appointment of the officers, considering his fleet to be of even greater importance than his army. About the end of March, this armada made its way up the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmora to the consternation of of the Byzantines and Italians alike. They had not realised until that moment the strength of the Sultan's naval power. While the fleet cruised in the Sea of Marmora, the Turkish army assembled in Thrace. As with the navy, the Sultan himself saw to its outfitting. Throughout the winter, armourers all over his dominions had been at work, making shields, helmets, breastplates, javelins, swords and arrows, while engineers constructed ballistas and battering rams. Mobilisation was rapid but complete. Regiments from every province were collected, as well as all the soldiers on furlough in their military fiefs. Irregulars were enrolled in their thousands. Only the garrisons needed to protect the frontiers and to police the provinces were left behind, as well as the forces that Turahan maintained in mainland Greece. The size of the army was awe-inspiring. The Byzantines declared that three or four hundred thousand men were assembled in the 
Sultan's camp, and even the soberer Venetians spoke of 150,000. In probability, to judge from Turkish sources, the regular troops numbered some 80,000, excluding the regulars, the Bashi Bazooks, who may have added another 20,000, and the non-combatant camp followers, of whom there must have been several thousand. The pride of place was held by the Janissary regiments. Since their reorganisation by Sultan Murad II some 20 years earlier, they numbered 12,000, of whom a small proportion were technicians or civil servants, and kennelmen and falconers, whom Mehmet himself had added. Every Janissary was at this time of Christian origin, but he had been brought up from childhood to be a devout Muslim, to regard his regiment as his family, and the Sultan as his commander and father. A few Janissaries might remember their families and perform occasional acts of kindness to them, but their fanaticism for Islam was unquestioned and their discipline superb. They had not greatly approved of Mehmet in the past, but they welcomed eagerly a campaign against the infidel Christians. The army in itself was impressive. Still more alarming were the newfangled machines with which it was equipped. Mehmet's decision to make his attack on Constantinople in the spring of 1453 was largely due to the recent triumphs of his cannon founders. Cannon had been used in Western Europe for over a 100 years, ever since a German friar called Schwarz had constructed a gun whose cannonballs were impelled by gunpowder. The value of cannons in siege warfare was quickly realised, but the experiences of the Germans at the siege of Cividale in northern Italy in 1231 and the English at Calais in 1347 had not been very successful. The cannons were not powerful enough to harm solid masonry. For the next hundred years, the new arm of the army was mainly used for dispersing enemy troops in the field or for breaking down light barricades. The Venetians had attempted to use cannon in naval warfare against the Genoese in 1377, but the ships of this time could not take the weight of heavy machines and cannonballs fired by the naval guns of the time were seldom powerful enough to sink a ship, though they might do considerable damage. Sultan Mehmet, whose interest in the sciences had been stimulated by his doctor, the Italian Jew Jacobo of Gaeta, was alive to the importance of artillery. Early in his reign, he'd ordered his foundries to experiment in producing larger cannon. In the summer of 1452, a Hungarian engineer called Urban came to Constantinople and offered his services as a maker of artillery to the Byzantine emperor. Constantine could not, however, pay him the salary that he thought to be his due, nor could he provide him with the raw materials that he needed. Urban therefore left the city and approached the Ottoman Sultan. He was at once admitted to the Sultan's presence and cross-questioned on declaring that he could construct a cannon that would blast the walls of Babylon itself. He was given a salary four times greater than that which he would have been willing to accept and provided with all the technical assistance that he needed. Within three months, he built the huge cannon which the Sultan placed on the walls of his castle at Rumeli Hissar and which sank the Venetian ship that had attempted to run the blockade. Mehmet then ordered him to make a cannon twice the size of the first. It was cast at Adrianople and completed in January. The length of its barrels was estimated to be 40 spans, that is 26 feet and 8 inches. The thickness of the bronze round the barrel was one span, that is 8 inches 
inches. And the circumference of the barrel, four spans at the rear where the powder was inserted, and 12 spans for the front half where the cannonballs were inserted. The cannonballs were said to weigh 1,200 weight. As soon as it was ready, a company of 700 men, to whom its care was assigned, placed it upon a cart drawn by 15 pairs of oxen. They dragged it with some difficulty to the neighbourhood of Mehmet's palace, where its powers were to be tested. The citizens of Adrianople were warned that there would be a fearful noise and that they must not panic. Indeed, when the fuse was lit and the first cannonball fired, the reverberation was heard for a hundred stadia, and the ball hurtled through the air for a mile, then buried itself six feet deep in the earth. Mehmet was delighted. Two hundred men were sent to level the road that led to Constantinople and to strengthen the bridges, and in March the cannon set out on its journey, drawn by sixty oxen with two hundred men marching beside it to keep the gun carriage steady. Meanwhile, under Urban's direction, the foundries produced other cannons, though none was to be so huge or so famous as this monster. Throughout the month of March, the Sultan's great army moved in detachments through Thrace towards the Bosphorus. It was not easy to provide for all the needs of so vast a host, but everything had been carefully planned. Discipline was good and the morale of the troops very high. Every Muslim believed that the Prophet himself would accord a special place in paradise to the first soldier who should force an entry into the ancient Christian capital. They shall conquer Constantinia, the tradition had declared. Glory be to the prince and to the army that shall achieve it. Another tradition adapted by the preachers to fit the occasion told of the prophet asking his disciples, have you heard of a city of which one side is land and the two others sea? The hour of judgment shall not sound until 70,000 sons of Isaac shall capture it. Of the sultan's own enthusiasm, there could be no doubt. Many times he was heard to declare his determination to be the prince who should achieve this supreme triumph for Islam. He himself himself left Adrianople on the 23rd of March. On the 5th of April, he arrived with the last attachments of the army outside the walls of the city. Meanwhile, within the city, the atmosphere was very different. The sight of the huge Turkish fleet cruising in the Sea of Marmora and of the vast cannons headed by Urban's monster lumbering towards the land walls showed the citizens what they were to expect. There were one or two slight earthquakes and some torrential rains, all of them interpreted as evil omens, while men and women reminded themselves of all the prophecies that foretold the end of the empire and the coming of Antichrist. Yet, for all the feeling of despair, there was no lack of courage. Even those thinkers who wondered whether in the end absorption into the Turkish Empire might prove less harmful to the Greek people than the present state of division, poverty and impotence joined wholeheartedly in the preparations for the defence of the city. Throughout the winter months, with the emperor encouraging them, men and women too could be seen repairing the walls and clearing out the moats. All the arms within the city were collected together to 
to be redistributed where they would be most needed. A fund was set aside to which not only the state, but churches and monasteries and private persons all contributed to meet the special expenses. There was still considerable wealth in the city, and it seemed to some of the Italians that more might have been given by certain of the Byzantines. But in fact, it was not so much money that was needed as manpower, armaments and food, and money could not buy those now. The emperor did all that he could. Ambassadors had been sent to Italy in the autumn of 1452 to beg for urgent help. The response was poor. A new embassy was sent to Venice. But the Senate replied on the 16th of November that it was indeed deeply distressed by the news from the East. And if the Pope and other powers were going to take action, it would gladly cooperate. The Venetians had not yet heard of the fate of Rizzo's galley the previous week. But even that news and urgent messages from the Venetian colony at Constantinople could not induce them to take definite action. An envoy sent that same month to Genoa received the promise of one ship, and the government offered to appeal for further aid to the King of France and the Republic of Florence. King Alfonso of Aragon's promises were even vaguer, but he gave the Byzantine ambassadors permissions to collect wheat and other foodstuffs in Sicily for transmission to Constantinople. They were busy on their task when the siege began, and they never saw their native land again. Meanwhile, Pope Nicholas was anxious to help, but he was unwilling to commit himself too far until he felt certain that the Union of the Churches had really been achieved, and he could do little without the Venetians. His attention had, moreover, been distracted by a revolt in Rome itself in January 1453. Until the city was pacified, he could not contemplate action abroad. As Constantine XI looked out from the city walls at the approaching Turkish army, he knew that a miracle would now be needed to save Constantinople. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend, or best of all, leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the start of the great siege of Constantinople. See you then.